Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number six. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are back again for another fantastic week. We're very excited. We have a big, important film that we're ready to talk about. But before we get to that, we do have some unfinished business. We do. I have some follow-ups. So, from our Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Who Framed Roger Rabbit episode, um, I had mentioned that there is a dual line that is mentioned... Christopher Lloyd in Who Framed Roger Rabbit and in Back to the Future. And at the time we were recording, I couldn't for the life of me remember what it was. And on Twitter, our loyal listener, Devin, pointed it out that the line is, I'm going to ram him. And in Roger Rabbit, it says they're going through the tunnel. And in Back to the Future, admittedly, I'm not that familiar as familiar with Back to the Future as I am with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So I'm not sure what point it comes up in the movie, but Christopher Lloyd does say it in both. No, Christopher Lloyd does not say it in Back to the Future. Okay, Biff well, say, I stand Biff, corrected. Biff says it in Back to the Future. Gotcha. Which I'm actually, well, no, I'm not really all that surprised that I didn't catch on to it because it's it's such a quick throwaway line. Uh, they go after Marty McFly in 1955. But good on Devin for catching that one. Yes, I like I said, I couldn't remember at all and I was hoping that as such the Back to the Future fan, you would have bailed me out of that one. Yeah, sorry. But Devin did, so thanks, Dev. Um, my second follow-up is something that I actually realized while I was doing show prep for this episode. Uh, last week when we were talking about the Muppets, I had mentioned that I thought a weak point in the movie, and I believe you agreed with me, is when Walt does his talent at the end of the Muppet show and he whistles a song. Right. And we were kind of like of all the things that he could have done, it just seemed to fall a little flat. And what I realized as I was thinking about Snow White was that uh, she sings a song called Whistle While You Work. And for whatever reason, while I was typing out Whistle While You Work, Give a Little Whistle that Jiminy Cricket sings popped into my head. And I was like, oh my gosh, there it is. That's the whistling. There's the connection. We've bridged the gap. I don't know if that was Jason Siegel's intent but it's going to bother me a whole lot less now, whether he intended to do this or not. I'm I'm definitely on board. At least there's a connection. It ties back in, uh, you know, and I. it's a great throwback to the first two animated features. Yes, it is. Well, good catch on you. Thank you. Well done. Um, so, yeah, we are going to talk about Snow White this week. Um, on a personal level... Um, this movie always felt kind of special to me because I remember my grandparents had a copy of it and it was their copy. It wasn't just something that they had so that when we went over to their house, my brother and I would have something to watch. It just always felt like such an important film because, you know, why would your grandparents have a cartoon? Right. Um, so it is a special movie because it was Disney's first full length animated feature. Well, you have to remember too, this movie came out in 1937. Uh, let's let's not gloss over that. This movie came out in 1937. Yeah. Right. So when your grandparents and, you know, when my grandparents were very young, uh, this movie was brand new. Never saw anything like it before. So I imagine part of the reason why they had this was because this movie was significant for them, you know, just based on their 
adolescence. Right. And at the time, it was like one of a kind. And we should point out as well that that's not the only really cool relic that your grandparents had. Recently, your granddad found it was one of the... Not an original map from Walt Disney World in Orlando. It was from 1974, so there were a few changes, but certainly much different than the Disney that we have now. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll post a picture of that on social media. He gave it to me, and he's like, I know you love Disney. Would you want this? I was like, oh, my God, yes, of course I want it. And uh, it's weird to look at it because so many right i mean obviously the park was still relatively new at that point but so much of what you know now is not there at all like there's no carousel of progress there was i don't even think pirates was on there yet i don't know i have to go back and look at it i haven't looked at it in a while admittedly because i'm just i'm so afraid of like creasing it or bending something yeah we, we gotta get to a go frame and look at it but that that's another show for another day um we will post it. Yes, we absolutely will. Let's, though, jump right into 1937's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Okay. So, as we said, it was Disney's first animated feature, and it was based on the Grimm's fairy tale. It opens with the evil queen seeking counsel from her magic mirror as to who is the fairest of them all. The evil queen has reigned supreme in this department up until now, when her stepdaughter Snow White is declared the fairest in the land, not only for her beauty, but for her kindness. Which is easy to see because when we first meet her, she's dressed in rags and she's scrubbing the steps of the castle and just happily singing as she's cleaning everything. She makes a wish in a magic wishing well that her prince will come and find her and take her away, and lo and behold... Prince Charming is passing by the castle, hears her song, and literally strows up behind her. Oh, who'd have thought? How convenient. Snow White gets startled, and she runs back inside, looking out the window at the prince, who is now serenading her. So Queenie's having none of this, and she tells her huntsman to take Snow White out into the woods, kill her, and bring back her heart in a casket as proof that Snow White is now dead. The huntsman can't actually bring himself to follow through on this. He tells Snow White of the queen's threat and begs her to leave and never return. And he promises that he's going to cover everything up by bringing the heart of an animal to the queen. Snow White runs through a dark forest. She's terrified as eyes stare at her and trees try to grab her. And overcome by fear, she throws herself on the ground and cries. When Snow White awakes, she is surrounded by animals who lead her to a little cottage in the woods where she can stay. Upon entering this house, she finds it inhabited by what she believes to be messy children. So she puts the animals to work, whistles while she works, and gets the house spotless in hopes that they will let her stay since she's cleaned everything up for them. We meet the men who live in the cottage and find out that they are not children. They are, in fact, minors. But ump bump They are the seven dwarves of varying personalities who dig for diamonds all day. Have you been sitting on that one all week? No, honestly, I was typing it up and I was like, oh, ha. Well, I'm glad you find yourself so amusing. Please continue. When the dwarfs return home, they quickly realize their house has been clean and the intruder is still inside. The dwarfs attempt to attack Snow White in her sleep, but she begins to wake up and then they get too scared to actually do anything. So Snow White introduces herself and the dwarves already know her as the princess. She tells them she's hiding from the queen and that if they let her stay, she will continue to clean and cook and has the dwarves over a barrel on gooseberry pie. So they agree to let her stay 
and she sends them to wash up for dinner. And that night, they show her a good time by playing music and dancing with her. Back at the castle, the vain queen again consults her mirror, who insists that Snow White is still the fairest in the land, thus revealing that she is still alive, so the queen takes matters into her own hands. She descends into her dungeon shop of horrors, where she transforms herself into an old hag and poisons an apple, which she plans to trick Snow White into eating. While the dwarves are out at work the next day, the evil queen in disguise finds the cottage, feigns needing help, and is invited in by Snow White. In return for Snow White's kindness, the old woman gives her an apple as a token of thanks and urges her to eat it. The dwarves return home, and Snow White is on the floor, and with the help of the animals, they chase down the evil queen. The pursuit takes the queen and the dwarves through the woods and up a cliff where the queen realizes she is fighting a losing battle, so she tries to leverage a boulder loose and take out the dwarves down the hill. Just when it seems like all hope is lost for the dwarves, lightning strikes the ledge that the queen is standing on, and she falls to her death, followed by the boulder for good measure. The dwarves return to Snow White, and they can't bear her loss, so they make a clear coffin to keep her in, which it seems like they don't intend to bury. Luckily, Prince Charming shows up just in the nick of time, kisses Snow White, and she is saved. As she wished in the well, the prince takes Snow White back to his castle where they live happily ever after, if you so choose to believe that Snow White is actually still alive. Oh, don't even get me started. You're not one of these, are you? Please. <laughs> you know, I had tweeted a couple of weeks ago. I actually think it was the first week of our show that I found this news. And there was a fan theory that was gaining a lot of traction that she might actually have died and that Prince Charming is the kiss of death and he's taking her away. And I really didn't invest a lot of stock into this, but after watching it, I was kind of like, you know, this theory does carry a lot of weight. Yeah, any theory carries weight if anybody has enough time to sit there and rationalize it. Oh yeah, you're making it seem like I'm buying into something that I read on the internet. That is exactly what you're doing. It's a solid theory. And the more I'm watching it, okay, here's here's the thing with Snow White. It's one of the Disney fairy tales. Like any fairy tale, you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit. I mean, you know, take something as simple as like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. What is a little girl doing wandering around the woods? How do bears know how to make porridge? Like, th there is a lot that I'm willing to overlook. But... After watching this, I feel like I have a lot more questions than answers, and this is kind of the only thing that ties it up in a bow for me. I, I can't disagree with you more. I think that this is a theory that has been thought up by somebody who spends more time in their mother's basement than they do at their job and had a lot of time to kill, <laughs> if you want my honest opinion. That's what I think. You know what I really think? I think that this movie is innocent. That's part of why I enjoy it so much. When you look at the script of this film, really, it's, it is sing-songy. It's that, it's that very flowery, I think was a word you had used when we, uh, in one of the first episodes that we did when you described the princesses. This does sort of characterize this entire film starting with the script, but I think that's what makes it so great is that it is just so very innocent. And see, I completely disagree with that. I think Snow White as a character is innocent, but this movie 
opens on a villain, which I love, by the way. Oh, have we not figured that out yet? (laughs) But in the first three minutes of screen time, there's a bounty on the princess's head and a demand for her heart in a casket. You tell me where is the innocence in that? Well, I think that when you look at when this film was released, you know, again, 1937, I think that there were certain things. There are certainly uh, you you can make the case for this script does not hold up. There's a couple of instances where that's certainly one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, when you you think about what is now socially acceptable when it comes to a children's film, that's something that could obviously scare kids in its nature. It's very graphic. Um, but I also think that Disney did pull a lot from those original fairy tales. I think that they they knew when to dial back. Clearly, you needed a motivation from the antagonist in this film being the evil stepmother, the queen. Mm-hmm. Um, you needed to uh, very quickly set up the fact that she was an evil entity and you're not going to like her. And you have to be so sympathetic towards the uh, protagonist in this case. In this case, Snow White. Um, so I agree with you. Maybe that doesn't hold up in the graphic nature of what is supposedly going to happen. But for the most part, I do feel that the script is very tame. See, I, I think that it's it's very straightforward. There's not an awful lot of drama to it, with the exception of the evil queen wanting to kill her stepdaughter and and in showing just how vain the queen is. But it's it's a very linear sort of film. Linear, yes, but that's a huge amount of drama. To me, this queen is probably the most evil out of all the Disney villains. I mean, think about what we are saying. She is going to off her stepdaughter because she's prettier than her. That is the most pointless motivation of any villain. Chris Kardashian would do the same thing if there wasn't money involved. Oh my God. She turned Bruce. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I wonder how. Nah, I'm not What's even going to get into that. I'm not daughters. even going to get into it. We're going to leave that alone. We're totally going to just leave that there. No, but I mean, this was incredibly risky for any Disney movie. But like, this was the first animated feature film. This was a huge risk for them to take. And and not only just have a villain like this, who is just so evil for evil's sake, but to lead off the movie with it. We don't open with a princess. You are opening on a magic mirror and a crazy lady who needs to be the prettiest girl in the room. Land. But isn't that brilliant, though? Yes, that's what I'm saying. She is probably the most purely evil villain. She's not after revenge. She's not, you know, trying to take down the princess because she feels like she's been wronged by her or like she's not trying to get Snow White off the throne. She already has the throne. She just wants to kill her so that she can be the prettiest one. That's the most evil thing I've ever heard of. I mean, Scar killed his brother to be the most powerful. I mean, you you can take her... I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, I'm not disagreeing with you, that in the upper echelon 
of evil Disney antagonists, whether they be queens or otherwise. She certainly is high-ranking. I'll give you, I think she's probably in the top three. Maybe she is the number one. But I, I don't see that uh, anything that she did is much worse than some of the really evil things that those other villains have done. I do give them credit, you know, because she was the first to do it. Right. No, and when you just strip it down like that, she's just a catty girl. Yeah, at the end of the day. Um, But I think in all... For the most part, I think the script, uh, I think I think it's it does still uh, resonate with audiences. I think that it it's still something that people enjoy. Um, something I noticed in this that I think you wouldn't necessarily see today. There's a point I want to say it's three quarters of the way through the film um, when Snow White. I I want to say it was the end of her first night with the seven dwarves where she gets on her knees and she prays. Yes. Uh, there's no way you would no. ever see that in a Disney mm-hmm. film now nowadays. No, not a chance. And, and she's not like just thinking out loud. I mean, she's on her knees at the bed, clearly like praying to some sort of deity. Right. Um, there's another scene where, um, the queen, as she's leaving her castle to go conduct this uh, this spell to become the old peddler woman, you see a visual of a dead skeleton. Two. A couple of them, right? Mm-hmm. That might not fly today. Clearly, she's killed people before. She's locked them up. That's a detail that I've missed on every other viewing of this movie. And when I saw it now, you know, she's fleeing down to the dungeons where she's got her... You know, I said before, Shop of Horror, she's got all her her potions back there and things like that. But she passes as she comes off the stairs. There's a skeleton in chains on the wall. And then I believe there's another coffin that she passes with a skeleton in it. And I was like, what is going on here? Now, uh, yeah, those those visuals, obviously, uh, sort of startling. Um, But the visuals that I like about this... um, a lot of the outfits and the structures and clearly some of the music, it stands out that this is absolutely a film that you, you noticed or you, you had mentioned that it was a, a grim fairy tale. It's clearly set in Germany. I believe so, yeah. And I thought that using those outfits and using the architecture... Uh, I thought that that paid homage very nicely to the original story, and I give Disney a lot of credit for placing it in its appropriate setting. Agreed. Um, The movie also teaches kids some lessons that I think are um, useful. Clearly, uh, they're trying to teach their kids about cleanliness, you know, she's she kind of takes that role of being the mother to these seven dwarves and she inspects them all hand by hand to see how dirty they are. And you must wash and this and that things that you you sort of heard in school and you can hear your own parents maybe trying to um, get you into the habit of doing as you're a young child. And Disney took this as an opportunity to give those lessons to children in this film. 
That's a really good point. I mean, we know obviously Disney was family oriented and that was his intention by making the parks was to give families a place to go. But I can definitely see that being a reason for him to do a movie like this or or putting a lesson like that into a movie was to sort of reinforce family values. Speaking of family, where is Snow White's father? We were just talking about how this queen has bodies in the basement. You have to imagine that, you know, Snow White is her stepdaughter. She married her father. Where is he? Yeah, that's true. That's a question that never really gets answered. No, he never comes up in this movie at all. It, yeah, it's true. And it, it's not even that it's not answered. It's just that he's non-existent. You just know that their relationship is stepmother and stepdaughter. And that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, there are very, I mean, that that's a flaw. I don't want to say there were a lot of flaws in the script. That certainly is one, and that stands out. Um, another one that I picked up on, we'll talk about the music in a few minutes, but when they're singing hi-ho, it's off to work we go. Did you ever pick up on the fact that they're singing it while they're walking home? It's home from work we go. They sing it going and coming. And when they're when they're leaving work, it's hi-ho, hi-ho, it's home from work we go. Oh, well, shame on me. I never picked up on that. Yeah, I know, because that's what I sing like every Friday. Oh. <laughs> oh, I never picked up on it. Yeah, no, it is. It's subtle, but they do they do switch the lyrics out. Depending. Interesting. Well, oh, come on. Good, good Disney is po- better than that. Point for you. Oh. Oh, let's not do that again. Um, I, I did find a couple of other flaws, though, with the script. Um, for example, you know, I mentioned it when I was giving the plot that she's wishing for her prince and he literally shows up behind her. You know, they don't even have uh, in films when your leading lady meets her leading man or vice versa. It's called a meet cute. And usually, you know, you see this in romantic comedies. I'm not talking about like horrible Hallmark Channel movies. I'm talking about you know, sort of cheesy romantic comedies or really any movie when the main love interests meet, you can kind of feel that tension building a little bit. Usually there's like some flirtatious dialogue going on. We have none of that here. Hmm. Right. He yeah. just shows up while she's singing, scares her, and then he starts singing to her. And then it's like, we're going to be together. Because even then later on, she's telling the dwarves about how she needs to find her prince again. But that kind of plays into what I had said before. Like, it is sort of innocent and simple in the way that this all happens. Like, yeah, you you can sit there and pick it apart and say it's not very detailed. But I, I think that a lot of the um, a lot of the defense of this movie just happens to be the year that it came out. I, I think that you a lot of a lot of flaws cinematically are forgivable because it was 1937. It's like any way that you can forgive any film made from that era you know, I mean, obviously, if the film is so bad or they do something so egregious, yeah, then maybe the actor was bad or the director was an idiot. But I think um, that sort of plays back into what I was saying about it being a very simpler time and they're trying to simplify the film. I mean, it's passable. Like I did say before, I do have to suspend my disbelief a little bit. This could be as simple as, you know what, there is a prince and a princess 
living separately, but, you know, if it is a royal family and they have to keep the royal bloodlines going, it could be as simple as, you know, it's an arranged marriage. Maybe that's how he knew how to find her. Maybe that's why she's just going to go with him. Also, speaking of just going with it, why does she just trust the huntsman after he tried to kill her? You know, he he's so stricken with not grief because he didn't kill her, but he's so shocked that he was about to even try to kill her. He just kind of falls to his knees and he can't even form a full sentence as he's telling her. It's like in three words. It's like the queen, she's going to kill you. Run. Why do you believe that? I would be running from the man who just tried to kill me. But why does she take so much stock in what he says? Well, that's that's something that we could you know, usually we sit here and dissect the characters. Eventually we do so. Maybe now's a time we can at least dissect her a little bit. If I have any issue with her, and I'm kind of glad that you brought this up, if there's any issue that I have with her at all, it's that she will literally do anything anybody says. She is so easily let on. And we talk about the family values. You talk about parents teaching their kids don't take candy from strangers. Snow White would do that. Right. I mean, she literally kind of did. Yeah, that that is a good point. So there certainly is a flaw. She's one of the most gullible princesses, I think, certainly, that Disney has ever, you know, produced on film. I used the term flowery in earlier episodes because I didn't want to use the term airhead. But I'll mm-hmm. use it now. <laughs> I think, no, I I really don't want to hate on it, but I think that's why I may have so many problems with this movie as a whole, because I don't really love Snow White as a character. I just feel like there's not much to her. She's just so la-di-da for me. And I mean, like, yes, of course, she's supposed to be this kind and generous princess, and she is. You know, for the time period, I can see where she was just emblematic of what you would want a princess to be and what you would want like a leading lady to be and I think that that definitely translates over because it was important to have something like that when you're doing a full-length animation you know there was nothing like this so you really had to give the audience something to latch onto in your leading character but I think that's it. This might be like a generational thing where my princesses are like Ariel, Jasmine, Belle. She pales in comparison. It's it's clearly very different. Where this movie feels dated, um, and there are obviously some parts where it does, that's a part that I think stands out second most. The most being the animation. Not to say the animation is bad, and we'll get to that in a few minutes, but I think second most to the animation is just how gullible she is and how easily led she is. And I don't I don't want to say that she's weak because she has a very good heart. And you see that immediately. But she is sort of simple. In, I just in, called in, her an airhead. I think weak is fair. Well, but I don't think that she's weak. I don't find her to be a weak-willed person. I think she's just easily led. I think part of that comes from the fact that, you know, she she's a princess that's wearing dirty, disgusting rags because that's what she was told to wear when she was 
scrubbing things in the palace that her evil stepmother made her do. And like she thinks nothing of it. And she just kind of sings and whistles and goes about her merry way. Because I think that she just lives that very uh, happy, simple, carefree, and sheltered life. Well, without getting too political here i think that also may have had to do with the time period because what is she doing she's cooking she's cleaning i'm wondering if that has a lot to do with what a woman's role was back then and maybe that's why she was sort of such a flat character and they didn't give her i mean obviously you're not going to have like such a strong independent princess as we've seen you know in later years and i'm not just talking about ariel but i'm talking about like anna and elsa you know for back then women weren't I mean we had the vote at that point but it was still you know the place was in the home and I think they even drive that home I don't know if you caught that there's a line that Grumpy says um when uh you know the rest of the dwarves are kind of on board with letting her stay grumpy is protesting it and i believe he says something about women having these wicked wiles and yeah, the rest the exact of... the exact quote is she's a female all females all females is poison uh they're full of wicked wiles yeah and i mean at the time that was an acceptable thing to say and the rest of the dwarves have already bought into this notion of having somebody to cook and clean for them Right. And it's funny because Snow White is doing it in kind of like a motherly nurturing way, but the dwarves are like ready to wife her up. Well, wasn't it, um, was it Hook where they were so into the idea of Wendy staying because they could be her mother or they, she you could be Peter their Pan? mother? Definitely in Peter Pan, but I feel like they harped on it a lot in Hook as well. Or maybe it was the fact that they didn't have a mother. Maybe that's what I keep thinking of. Yes, because in Hook, they drive home the point much more that these are like They're orphan, orphan children. Orphans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Orphan Not just children. lost boys. Right, right, right. Exactly. And that's kind of, that. that's more how I took it. But, but I think there certainly is uh, validity to what you just said. And I think a lot of that, too, stems from how we talked about some things are forgivable because they're sort of set in their time. The way that this movie is sort of primitive in terms of filmmaking, um, whether you agree with it or not, and I'm not saying you should or should not, um, that's your interpretation, not mine. There are certain things that I kind of take with a grain of salt when I see in a film like this, like this sort of line, because... That was socially acceptable at the time. You're not going to put it in a film today, but I'm right. certainly not going to chastise somebody for doing something that was socially acceptable at the time. I mean, That's they very true. They really, I mean, it's it's not right. It's not necessarily fair, but I mean, it didn't physically harm anybody. Now, a lot of people are going to say, "Shame on you!" It could mentally harm somebody. I get that. I'm certainly not going to get into that argument. But I don't know that there was so much malice involved in that statement so much as it was made for comedic effect during a time where you could you know, say something like that comedically. Right. And it also did kind of push the story forward. Right. Um, but speaking of, what really does make this movie for me is the dwarfs. You know, we just talked about Grumpy, but we haven't hit on them really yet. And I think that's why this movie was so successful. I mean, obviously, it went on to win 
not just an Oscar, but they made seven little Oscars for it. Yeah. Because it was such an accomplishment. Um, but I I absolutely love the dwarves. Um, I think they're endearing. I love that they have such different personalities and how they play off of each other. And uh, I I love every song that they sing. I think that it's a very um, interesting observation of the human condition. The way that um, Inside Out did it mm. and, and the different um, emotions that one could feel. I think that this movie kind of does in... Um, uh, in a very similar way, obviously, they set the trend. You have your dopey and your sneezy and your sleepy and your grumpy. That was that was kind of my interpretation of it. And looking back on it now, clearly set a trend for future films like Inside Out. Well, wasn't that part of the original fairy tale? Wasn't it something part of the darkness of it wasn't it supposed to be that they represented split personalities something like that admittedly i haven't read the story in a very long time but i think it's something similar to that i know a lot of their a lot of their um names were also not the original names from the original fairy tales no um i'm not sure what they were the only version of this that i've ever read was a book that disney published after the movie you know you had those picture books when you were a kid right, that right, had like right. a little bit of dialogue on it when you were learning to read um but i've never like actually read the full fairy tale do you have anything else on the script that stood out to you before we move on to the music um no i think that i've picked it apart enough <laughs> the music um is actually very good in this film um i think that um I think someday my prince will come. I think that the actress has a very nice singing voice. When she speaks, it's it's horrendous. I'll just say that. That's it. It's like Glinda the Good Witch meets um, the silent film actress that speaks on film for the first time and singing in the rain. I can't oh, stand even, it. Oh God! Don't even start. It, it's <laughs> it's startling how she sounds. <laughs> wow. That's quite the combination. That's that's a pretty good, yeah. That that's accurate. But I I I like that song. I think that it it kind of um, it picks up where she left off in what she was looking for, and I think that for a lot of people, whether it's a prince or a princess, it doesn't matter. I think when you're sort of adolescent like that, and you think about what your life is going to be like when you grow up, certainly I think most people at some point envision what is my wife going to be, what is my husband going to be. I think that this song in that aspect is a, is, is a, uh, a nice way to express adolescence and a very simple-minded and a very innocent view at what love is supposed to be when you really haven't experienced enough life to know what it actually is. That's very sweet. Now, what do you have to say about it? <laughs> My note is that the first memorable song doesn't come up until about halfway through the movie, which is Whistle, whistle While You Work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um... No, but it's like you said, um, 
you know, that is a good lesson for children. But I think, um, you know, it's just such a Disney touch. That song is that it's it's a really catchy number. I mean, it's no under the sea, but, um, you know, it's it's an upbeat tune. And, you know, I think that it was done very carefully, very intentionally. Right. And you still hear it today in the parks. Um, I think if Fantasmic, you hear it. I believe so. Right. When they're coming around on those water floats. Um, I love all the dwarf songs. Um, probably like less memorable than Hi Ho, uh, is the song where they're washing up. Yes. Which I recently learned the name of is Blood Alumdum. I'm not really? kidding. That's what it's called. Google. Yeah, I had no idea because I, I wanted to bring it up and I was like, I actually have no idea what the name of this song is. And I, I thought it was going to be, uh something with with scrubbing or or whatever and then i i looked it up and i was like oh okay it does have a name um but i think that's a fun number uh and i love silly song that is one of the most iconic scenes i think in the entire disney catalog is when dopey uh gets up on is it sleazy or sleazy (laughs) sleepy or sneezy he's up on their shoulders no, sle- Sleazy is the dwarf that hung out Freudian in Times Square slip. in the mid-80s. <laughs> sleazy is the equivalent to the Muppets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, Freudian yeah, it, it's You're right, it is iconic because, uh, the, to bring it back to the parks, yeah. you do see it in the new uh, Seven Dwarves Mine Train. It's the last scene that you see as you're pulling into the station. And uh, animation-wise, very impressive movements. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm glad you brought that up about the park because it's not just that they have it on a current ride. So obviously, you know, it it answers the question we always ask, does it hold up? Yes, because you gave the dwarves the mine train coaster, but you kept that scene. But the important thing is here that you kept it because Snow White did have a ride. I believe it's where... Winnie the Pooh is now, or Winnie the Pooh is no Winnie no, the Pooh is um, Mr. Toad. Mr. Toad is Winnie the Pooh. Where they they have a princess fairy tale hall. Yes, is where uh, Snow yes. White's scary adventure used to be. Yes, and it was you know one of the old classic rides where the dark cart ride. just kind of, yeah dark ride. It moved you through, and uh, it just highlighted scenes from the movie. But I remember that was always my favorite part of that ride is like when the music kicks in and you know they play that scene out where Snow White and Dopey are dancing, and that was something that after I finished screaming my head off was so happy to see at the end of the mine train not a roller coaster fan but i did it but it's such a good ride it's fun it's and they did such an amazing job with it yeah the animatronic i mean i know this is not a parks podcast lord knows there are so many of them that we love and respect but oh man that ride is so good but i think it bears mentioning because while we're not a Parks podcast, and there are plenty of really good Parks podcasts out there, Navigating the Magic is really good, WDW Radio is really good, um, Men Do WDW is great, um, some of our uh, friends that have those podcasts, if you're looking for good Parks podcasts, they're definitely worth a listen. But I think it is worth mentioning that because when they did the new Fantasyland expansion, um, they could have gone with just about anything and they p- made sure that yeah. they put a Snow White ride in because this movie is still relevant. Uh, s- you know, it's it's 
relevant in in film it's relevant for children it's relevant for disney as a company in all facets i think the fact that they make sure that they have tributes to it in the parks and that they put so much money into keeping this story alive a lot of it is that they respect the fact that it was the first united states full-length animated feature but i think that it is such a classic film that they just don't want it to go away. No, you're absolutely right. And they could have done a refurb on the dark ride and maybe just either changed the animatronics or just, you know, done different scenes and just update it, made it a little bit more current. But instead, they just abandoned that entirely and gave them an awesome, awesome ride. The way that the the mine cars swing when you're going uh, you know down the track and when you're inside the diamond mine and they start to sing hi ho and they have the projection of the shadows if you've never been on the ride I'm not going to spoil much more for you because the first time that you see it certainly is a treat yes and you know what I did say scream my head off I'm a big baby children can do this ride it's not that mean of a coaster oh I know children can do this ride I've, I've seen plenty of them do it Moving on, you mentioned the animation in Silly Song. Um, let's let's talk about the animation, not just in that scene, but you know, this was the first full length animated feature. Um, yeah, to me, Silly Song is the best animation of this whole whole movie. the The movement, like you said, is wonderful, um, but especially in comparison to like just some of the other scenes. Like, um, to me, Snow White does fall. A bit flat and I really I, I know I sound like I'm going after her I've already attacked the personality but now I'm going after how she looks but just animation wise she does just fall a little flat where I feel like the dwarves are more rounded out and I don't know if that has to do with you tried to make these like jolly little men and you know they're more you know I guess because Doc and Happy are a little bit more heavy set like that's where you get that roundness from but I feel like even just their facial features and their noses are so much more there's so much more depth to them no you know what it's I wrote the same thing I wrote faces are flat with no dimension specifically talking about Snow White and the Queen yeah because they don't even really have you know I just said with the dwarves they have like a full nose Snow White Prince does eventually when you see him in profile yes Snow White has nostrils they didn't even give her like the little jupe for the end of her nose. Yeah. It's it's like a it's one line. Yeah, if 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 any of you uh, you know, you've seen enough Disney movies, you know what jupe means. <laughs> but the but honest, but I'm sure people know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And a lot of the eye and mouth movements you can tell is very primitive. Mm. Um and the the depth in some scenes, I I don't know, I don't think that they use the multiplane for this, and you can kind of tell because like when they when they have the opening shot of the castle, it does kind of look like everything is just on one layer, and the forest too, it doesn't have like those layers of your background, and then like the the you usually they do it with the trees and the leaves where that becomes your foreground. I mean, this forest scene is a little bit different because uh, it's so animated because things are jumping out at her. Um, and that I think they did really well. 
Um, all of the, you know, the trees kind of form arms and try to grab her. And then there's like the logs in the lake that become crocodiles. The way that they transitioned, um, you know, it really shows how her mind is playing tricks on her. But it's scary. Like to a child, that always scared me as a kid. Mm -hmm. But I always thought that that was really, really well done. I think for the most part, the animation is fairly smooth. Um, I like um, the ripples in the water well. Mm. I think that's outstanding. Yeah. It, it's just such a stupid little detail, but I really liked it. To me, my favorite, aside from uh, the silly song sequence, is uh, the diamond mine. To yeah. me, those shining diamonds could hold up against the snowflakes in Frozen today. Mm-hmm. You know, there are... Um, I love I love the detail in the house. I love the detail in the forest. There are certain things that I'm not I don't love and I understand it was the first animated film, but there are times where things sort of just appear out of nowhere. Whether it's a character that kind of just appears on the screen or she goes to reach out for something and all of a sudden it just appears in her hand. Mm -hmm. That kind of has a very herky-jerky feel to it and that sort of takes me out of it. And I would, I feel like a movie that for 1937 cost $1.5 million to make. About 900000 over budget. That That's something that they, they were so careful with so much of what they did. I'm surprised that so much of that still exists in the final project. Mm. You know what also really stands out to me? And to me... It's it's probably the best animation in the whole film is the animals is from square one. Disney was putting animated animals into their movies, you know, and this is like obvious. It predates everything. This was the first one. But like when you think about, you know, there's a lot of deer in this movie. And I, I kind of saw where it was like a precursor for Bambi. And then obviously, you know, down the line, we have Lion King, Jungle Book, Lion King. Um, it's just interesting that that's been such a common thread is that they always do these animals perfectly. And they have that Disney look. Yes. They have that yeah, Disney yeah, yeah. animal look. But I I think um, their movements in this film were very impressive. Yes. They looked very lifelike for, you know, for a lack of a better term, quote unquote, lifelike. Um, her funeral scene in this movie is very sad. And I, I found that it was a very strong visual yeah. when they when they're just gathered around that that glass coffin. It's it's heart wrenching. Yeah, because they because the dwarves are in so much pain. You mean after they lost the person that they knew for two whole days? Yes, that's exactly right. No, I mean they did obviously care for her very, very much in the time that they spent with her. I'm not going to, you know what? It is such a, such an endearing part of the movie. I mean, it's, it's the sad part of the movie, but you do feel bad for them. So again, that's where this movie is passable. Right. Believable. No, no. Like when she wakes up, like yes. when she wakes up from death, but she keeps her eyes closed. Excuse me. When he kisses her, when Prince Charming kisses her and wakes her up, for the most part, she keeps her eyes closed. No, I heard what you said. But you're sitting here saying that this internet theory is a bunch of malarkey, and yet you just said she doesn't open her eyes. Tell me it's not the kiss of oh, death. Oh, God. 
No, and, I think it was a flawed animation. And you see that castle on the be- in the beginning of the movie and it's up on a hill? It's in the clouds at the end. That implies heaven. Ugh, I, I'm not. I'm not going. To, I'm not going to get baited into this. I made myself a promise that if this came up while we were doing this show, I was not going to get baited into this. <laughs> I am not buying into this nonsense. Too late. No, it is not. You said it yourself. She doesn't even open her eyes. Why? Why? Why does Grumpy just appear in a doorway? Did 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 Scotty put him there from Star Trek? I could sit here and I could come up with some cross-universe where the Seven Dwarves were characters in Star Trek, but first they had a cameo over with Snuffleupagus before they jumped over to Fraggle Rock, if I really had enough time on my hands. Maybe Snow White had multiple personalities, and that's why it's projected onto the dwarves. You know, when I heard Whistle While You Work, (laughs) I'm not even going to. I, I didn't get a chance to bring this up before. Um, I actually forgot that that came from this movie, because as a kid growing up, "Whistle While You Work," I didn't, um, I didn't have the association of that song with this movie the way I did with "Someday My Prince Will Come" and um, "Hi Ho." I knew that song from one of those old the Disney sing along yes. tapes. Yes, follow the bouncing ball. Yeah, I don't think you know what it was from? It was from the Disneyland tape and I want to say the characters were cleaning the park. Oh, that's cute. I don't remember that one. I'm thinking I of think the that's um, what it was. I'm thinking of the sing-alongs where the owl introduced yes. everything. Yeah. The tape that I had though um was characters like the fur characters in Disneyland. It was shot live action in Disneyland. What are these fur characters of which you speak? We're going to find this on YouTube after we're done recording this and you're going to watch it. I didn't know that they cut to the parks. I'm just thinking of the one that I had was just all straight animated scenes. This particular VHS tape was specific to Disneyland in Anaheim. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was good. That's that's how I that's how I remembered this from. And when I heard this, when we went back and watched it. I was like, "Oh, whistle while you work." And I and I it took it kind of took me out of the movie cuz all I could think about was the sing-along tape from when I was a kid. While we're circling back to songs for a second, I want to talk about a song that was not in this movie. And I'm not talking about something that got cut. I'm talking about we're going to we're going to bring this full circle that it starts on the Queen and what I what strikes me most about this movie is that your villain never got a song. And I was thinking about it in the scene where she poisons the apple. After I got over my issues of how terrifying it was that she's got bodies in her basement, she goes to the back room. She first transforms herself into the old hag and then she poisons the apple. And both times she's just speaking in this low monotone delivery of an incantation and to me it was so jarring because it just made everything that much darker and as I was sitting there watching it I was like this would have been the place where they probably put a song but in a way I'm glad that they didn't because I think a song it's like we were talking about how we were talking about the little mermaid how you get so invested in Ursula because she's so much fun and they clearly had 
fun with all the theatrics of that number. And I feel like you might have taken away how from how creepy this queen is if you gave her a song. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you would have made her a little too whimsical. Like it worked with Ursula because she was so um, bombastic and kind of Broadway-ish. Yes. I, this queen, that would not work. Right. And it, it just makes the film... You know, it's kind of like what we were saying in the beginning is this film really does toe the line between being incredibly dark and incredibly li- lighthearted. Yeah. I think that's why the dwarfs are so lovable because you really had to have something that would pull you out of the darkness. Mm-hmm. And Hi-Ho is that kind of song. We haven't really talked a lot about it. In a weird way, I don't know that there's much to say about it. It kind of, the song just sort of is what it is, but it's iconic. It is. The um, the sequence, though, yeah. is really well done because the sun is setting. This is as they're going home, which, by the way, they do say, okay. Sean. Um, you know, they have the colors of the sunset, which I thought was really an accomplishment because, again, you know, we said this is the first animated feature. I think that's something we take for granted now. Um is, you know, it was really well done. The colors are beautiful, but they also have the silhouettes of the dwarves projected onto a mountain. Uh, you know, in one of the shots, they they just show the dwarves leaving and the shadows are up against a hill. Um, you know, and it's something that now probably doesn't seem that impressive, but um, I just think it was such a good detail for the time. To sort of reverse that shot. Yeah. And I think you you circle around now to does the film hold up? We talked about it a little bit a few moments ago. I think there are certainly aspects of this film socially that don't hold up. Um, stylistically and, and technically, things don't hold up and do seem dated. But I feel that as a whole, the film still does. I think that it is a classic film. I think that it is a technical marvel. Yes. I think that in spite of its flaws, I think it's innocent enough where it's not harmful for anybody to watch this film, whether you are an adult or a child. Agreed. And I think that in all, the film does still stand the test of time because of things that we mentioned like you know, multi-million dollar attractions brand new in the parks as of the last decade. True. Uh, News for this week, not an awful lot in terms of the films, but Disney now uh, is rumored to be in an auction for Sky. Okay. Now, Sky is a European broadcaster. They do a lot of Euro news, but they also have a lot of sporting events that they broadcast, whether they be soccer matches or rugby matches. Um, They're very, very big in sports. And that leads me to wonder if they get a hold of that. We've talked so much about the Disney streaming service. Do they somehow rope this in Maybe not with the streaming service, but with ESPN, with the European audience. Right. Especially because you have so many Euros that are here that want to watch 
specifically the soccer games. Could be. I mean, they're they're talking that they're going to have to buy. I think right now Comcast is the high bid at nineteen dollars and thirty cents per share. Now, admittedly, I don't know how many shares are up for grabs to buy this company, but I would imagine that there's billions at stake in buying this. I don't know, though, that this is something that Disney's going to necessarily get themselves involved with because they've bought Marvel, they've bought Lucas, they've bought, you know, they, they, they're they they're expanding the parks, they're launching this new streaming service. They just did the streaming service for ESPN. I don't know that this makes sense for them. I mean, I don't understand why they would do it, but I feel like they have so... I mean, we know they've got m- more money than anybody, but... They have so much money tied up in other properties right now that I'm not really sure why they would need to pursue this. Right. And I feel like the whole purpose of the streaming service is to compete with Netflix. And instead of having to license the films to Netflix, just do it all on their own. I don't know how much of this is about just having a streaming service for all of their entities. Yeah. I'm not sure. Well, at any rate... um, did you have anything else you wanted to leave us off with in terms of uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves? Uh, actually, there was something oh, that you pointed out. Okay. And I can't believe that we forgot to mention it with the book. Yes! We totally forgot this. This movie starts and ends with the book, uh, with the book on the blue velvet. That classic blue velvet. I'm dying to know if it is the same one that they used in the Jungle Book. If they had just the same background for everything. Walt Disney's first animated feature and last animated feature. Both with books opening and closing on the blue velvet. That's the second time I've heard you say that and still I have goosebumps. Well, I guess we're going to have to just sit the rest of the night out at this point (laughs) and recover from that one. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a magical week. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.